The Syracuse University football team finished the 2017 season with a record of 4-8. Same as the 2016 Syracuse University football team. So what do we know about the direction Dino Babers is taking this program? Other than he's 8-16 in two years as head coach. Did the Orange make tangible improvement in 2017 despite the same exact record? If so, where? Who will be targeted on the recruiting trail? What are the biggest holes to fill on the 2018 roster, and does Syracuse have the personnel to fill them? Will there be any coaching changes? And is the future now for young Tommy DeVito, with the injury history surrounding starting quarterback Eric Dungeon? Syracuse.com football beat reporters Nate Mink and Stephen Bailey join me on the Syracuse Sports Podcast this week to discuss all those questions and to see if 2018 can be the season that Syracuse football fans will remember for a long, long time, as Dino Baber said in the moments following SU's season finale against Boston College. So we're here with Stephen Bailey, Nate Mink, beat writers extraordinaire. Boys, it's over already. Here we are. It's late November. Syracuse basketball has taken hold. They look pretty good, by the way, so far. We'll see how that goes. But they're 4-8 again, the Syracuse football team. So... That belief without evidence thing is going to be, you know, challenged here. It's going to be something that Syracuse fans will have to look at because technically they're not better because they have the same record. Now, that being said, where did you see improvement? Stephen, let me start with you. Despite the same record as last year, where did you see clear, tangible improvement? Well, for the first nine games, the defense was significantly better by pretty much any statistical means. Uh, They were the best third-down defense in the country, I believe, through nine games. It it certainly fell apart at the end, and there are some concerns there, and I think there's a valid point to be made that they played significantly better quarterbacks and offenses last year compared to this year. Uh, But I I think the front four was better. Uh, I think the secondary was better. You know, losing uh, Jordan Martin after Antoine Cordy basically left them without a good cover safety for the second year in a row, and I think we saw – I think that had that was one of the factors that hurt Syracuse's defense down the stretch. But I'll still say that those nine games provided some uh, encouragement there. Um, on the offensive side of things, I think we saw Eric Dungy take another step, uh, although he can, continues to get hurt time and time again. Um, I think the offensive line went from probably maybe the worst in Power 5 to 70th or, or 80th percentile toward the bottom. So step forward, and I think they'll take a step forward again. Uh, th- those are probably the biggest areas of improvement kind of from a position-to-position group I saw. And, Nate, despite the losses, you know, you look at the last two losses of the season put aside. Those were blowouts, and, you know, Syracuse, you know, got what they deserved, if you will, in those games. But Miami, LSU, NC State, the number of games this year that Syracuse was in the fourth quarter, that was competitive, and looking at the beginning of the season, how tough the schedule was going to be, I mean, you can almost mark that off as a win, as an improvement, as a tangible sign, things that were taking a step forward. Yeah, not not to regurgitate too much of what Steven said, but, you know, the defense played well enough, I think, to win nine games this year. Last year, they were probably good enough to win four to five games last year, which is what they did. And so, you know, I think... Like, like Stephen alluded to, um, circumstances changed late in the year just in terms of weaknesses that opposing coaches and offensive coordinators were able to expose more easily um, given the personnel that Syracuse was left to play with those last three weeks of the season. Uh, but there's no doubt, um, the beginning part of the year, um, they were in every, every game. I mean, you can definitively say 
that they played well enough uh, for enough stretches to beat a Miami at Miami, to beat a Florida State at Florida State, to beat uh, LSU. LSU in Death Valley. I think that's the one, isn't it? That's the game they had. Of all those games, they were close, and that's the one they just – I think they'll regret the most. Yeah, I think Middle Tennessee State they regret more. But I, I think it ha- it really had to hurt to really they outplayed LSU that game, and then LSU loses to Troy the next week. Uh, so I, I think those are the two that come back. Sidebar, maybe. quick story. How did so when you look at that Middle Tennessee State game, you got that great shot of Scott Schaefer with the victory <laughs> cigar. Is that something you had in mind to just? Get a shot of him, and then you know ultimately got one of the endearing shots of the entire season to see that guy with the stogie <laughs> in his mouth walking through the bowels of the Carrier Dome. Yeah, that was five hours of trailing Scott Schaefer made made worthwhile in a span of two or three seconds and uh, four very blurry iPhone pictures. One was good. You got one was, one good. was pretty good. I scrolled through him at the yep. end, and I was like, one was All good. Right, one, you can see the cigar, you can see him. Yep. There's a little bit of expression on his face, but. I mean, I followed him. He got off the bus for Middle Tennessee State like an hour and 45 before the game. That's when that's when the visitors usually arrive. Followed him into the stadium, you know, kind of followed him around warm-ups as best I could. You know, the the fans up by the coach's box gave him a standing ovation when he came in. Followed him down, kind of all the coaches jogged down at halftime, just kind of waiting for a moment. Uh, got a few moments, but, but that one was certainly the most telling. Uh, especially when you talk to him after the game and he says, oh, you know, it really didn't mean that much extra to me. You know, this was just a game. We do it for the kids. And it's like, oh, by the way, you know, I had this cigar saved for the last six months. So. <laughs> not, not, not to rub salt on the wound, but Middle Tennessee finished 6-6. Six and six. So that Syracuse game certainly uh, got them into a bowl game despite playing you know, a good chunk of the season without their starting quarterback, too. Yeah, no doubt. Say what you about Dino Babers, guys. We mentioned, you know, what improvement you can measure from a 4-8 and eight season to a 4-8 and eight season. The marketing department must love this guy because every year he comes up with a big expression. When he first arrived, of course, we all closed our eyes at that press conference. And then year two, it was games four through six, and we'll see that spike. So even after losing the last three games, giving up 162 points, all the yards they gave up. He's always looking ahead, even in the post-game press conference after the BC game. And he says that the 2018 season will be one we remember for a long, long time. Even for Dino, that's kind of raising the bar on what that expectation could be. It, it's, you know, he is not shy about making these kind of unvarnished statements. Um, and, and, you know, at, at some point, they're going to have to start to back them up a little bit. You know, you think back to the big one that he had said on day one and it's kind of had followed up going into year two, that there was going to be some sort of offensive breakthrough this season. It never happened. I mean, it, it really didn't. And it goes back to, you know, the defense played well enough to win a lot of games this season. They should have won those games if the offense had been able to execute to the point that, everything in this program is built around. I mean, the way they practice, the way they lift, the way they train, the way they condition is all geared to the offensive side of the ball. And when you're only scoring in the 20s and the defense feels like they are holding their own out there and doing enough to win the game, over time that deflates your defense a little bit. And that is probably a little bit on some level demoralizing. And you know, I understand the Clemson game, you know, and, and, you know, Pittsburgh and some of the other wins they had this year. You know, they did enough offensively. 
but I think at this point in this in this rebuild, you know, there was an expectation for the offense to be better and to do more. And I think as we look ahead towards next year, you know, that is the area that needs to show progress more, I think, than the defense. I mean, I think the defense this year took a significant step forward. The offense, even if you go back to the beginning of the season, that Middle Tennessee State game, for instance, I cannot particularly point at a ton of progress from week two to where they were. Even, you know, by week nine or ten when they were playing at Florida State, they had always kind of just, you know, hurt themselves early in games or just never got that kind of consistency. And when, you know, you're, you're again, it goes back to the whole program philosophy. Everything is about, you know, the offense and maximize, maximizing possessions. Your defense is seeing a lot more possessions because of the offense you're choosing to run. And again, over time, if you are not executing offensively, that just has an emotional wear down on your defense. It's interesting to hear Nate say that, Stephen, because if you had to pick a scapegoat right now from the fans, they'd pick Brian Ward, the defensive coordinator. And look, the numbers speak for themselves, 162 points over 2,000 yards. But you brought it up, Nate, depth wasn't there. And this is how the offense affects the defense. When Eric Dungy goes down, it deflates your season, and that's the third straight year we have seen this. So year four, you almost have to plan for it. You have to account for the fact that you're going to lose Eric Dungy at some point. So that brings us to young Tommy DeVito. What can you (laughs) tell us about DeVito watch and what kind of quarterback he could be, and what you hear about his development here in 2017? I think he's going to be a good quarterback. I think uh, he arrived as advertised. Great arm talent, you know. He, he impressed in the camp circuit because he can make just about any throw uh, on the field, and obviously it's different in seven on sevens and you know not wearing pads. But uh, he got a chance to work with the SU offense for about the first nine weeks this year. Then they moved him over to the scout team, and uh, he he gave the first team defense some fits at times, um, which is there was there was a big uh, you know a big shift in just kind of the way the scout team played a couple of defensive guys said chris frederick at corner and zaire franklin the linebacker um you know the the real test for devito is just going to be at least in my opinion you know learning uh, to play against acc defenses learning to make reads on the fly uh learning what it's like to to get up and try and hurry up after you just get walloped you know kind of on a blindside hit uh, and, yeah, he's played football before, but it's a little bit different when you're going against Clemson and Florida State and Louisville. You know, just ask Eric Dungy. Uh, but uh, I think the bottom line is we're going to get to see him next year, you know, barring some kind of unexpected injury or something like that. You know, he, he should be the, the primary backup. Uh, I can't imagine Eric Dungy playing every snap in a season. I think the, the Vegas odds on that one would have to be pretty long. Uh, so it's it's going to be exciting to see him get out there and then finally show the fans a little bit of what they've been looking forward to these two years. Nate, the fans have really been looking forward to him. All the ratings are there, and it's just, you know, fans are so excited about him. But should we put Rex Culpepper in the conversation to be the backup quarterback next year? I mean, he looked pretty good in the in the last game of the season. Not so much Louisville, but Boston College. You know, I think asking a redshirt freshman third-string quarterback to do what he did he was pretty decent, but it just seems like we're all ready to roll out that red carpet for DeVito. Well, I, th- I think Rex, the, the last couple of weeks, showed, particularly the last game against Boston College, showed the coaching staff that he is serviceable in some in some role next year. And it can be a part of that program and have an impact on that program, whether, if, whether it's a minor role in practice or a larger role moving forward. But I think everything, every opportunity is in front of Tommy DeVito 
to overtake and take stranglehold of that that number two or, or possibly even you know number one quarterback position. I, I, I still think Dungy is going to be you know without question the leader of that room next year as a senior. But you know I think for the for the first time in a long time, <laughs> I think they have two Division one FBS quarterbacks on their roster. Um, and again, it goes back to you know the the Dungy dilemma and one of the most fascinating things that I think has has played out over the last couple seasons is when when he has gone down late in the season it has just deflated the entire team and you know not to knock too much on the, the quarterbacks that had to be thrown into the fire there but you know the record bore itself out 1 in 15 over the last 4 years in November with the only win coming in, in Scott Schaefer's final final game as a coach, um, they, they, they could they could not win counts. with uh, the number two quarterback um, in, in the, over the last few years. And I think when you have when it when it has such an emotional impact on your team to the point where the first year Dungy got hurt, you know you you see the coaching staff get fired three weeks later. When you see Dungy get hurt. At the end of last season in 2016, they are non-competitive for the final month of the season, um, and so when it happened again this year, it's like, here we go again, guys. We are that emotionally fragile. We are that emotionally uh, tied to this one player. It just creates a fascinating dilemma, I think, going into next season. To be fair, Zach Mahoney should have wins over Pittsburgh and Wake Forest <laughs> to put up that many points and have your defense give up 76 and 64 in those games. But point taken, two Division One legit quarterbacks. I don't know if that will create a competition because one's a senior and one's an upcoming player, but we'll let that play out. So we look to the future, Stephen, and, of course, you make that immediate flip to recruiting. And the coaches are out there on the recruiting trail, but I want to throw JUCO players in there as well. I would anticipate I don't want to put a number on it, but there's going to be JUCO players on this roster next year. I think we all are in agreement there. So I throw that to you positionally, who they're visiting, what they're doing, what's kind of the recruiting plan here for the next couple of months. Sure. I got a, I've got a few names. Um, there are going to be plenty more. I mean, this is probably just a few fish kind of in the ocean, so to speak. Uh, they visited Dorian Gerald, a defensive end, one of the top JUCO DNs. Uh, Steve Stenard, SU's defensive ends coach, went out to see him this week. Former Tennessee commit, uh, he's no longer committed there after Butch Jones was fired. So we'll see if they can get in on him. You know, DN's a position where they could definitely use another body. Uh, they had Jerron Woodyard, a slot receiver, up this weekend. A uh, really fast guy, uh, kind of I- ideal fit. You know, we saw what our Phillips did the last couple of years as a guy who came in as a running back and then played H-back. So bringing in kind of a, maybe a more natural receiver, you just kind of wonder what a guy with some real experience there uh, could do, and they got Sean Riley and Nikeem Johnson back. I think they like those guys, but I'm not sure one is necessarily primed to take on a number one role. Uh, Dwayne Johnson, uh, defensive back, they definitely need more numbers back there. They could use probably another coverage safety, another Jordan Martin type. You know, we saw Antoine Cordy miss the last two years. Uh, it's really hard when you're playing Lamar Jackson or, or BC power runners, you know, zone read teams, and, and you want to go one high. Uh, but you don't have a safety you can play hash to hash back there and cover you up and you know not bite on the play action. Uh, so so we'll see if they can find someone there. And then one more name to watch: Joel Shaw, 
Uh, you'll probably remember him. He was a 2016 signee. Uh, he, he did not land here. He ended up at Lackawanna Community College, uh, some academic issues. SU got back in touch over the summer. It was kind of a tedious process because there's there's a little bit of bad blood there, but uh, they're working through it. They're going to go see Shaw on Thursday. And, um, you know, they, they had three running backs. Uh, Hassan Hall decommitted. He, he was a little bit of a shiftier guy. Shaw's more downhill, but, you know, maybe he ends up being uh, the third back in that class. What's the recruiting message right now? I mean, we always know what you say in recruiting generally, and when you're coming off back-to-back four and eight seasons, it's, hey, come help us turn this thing around. But let's go beyond that. What is the message the coaches are spreading out there? Yeah, I think it's – I don't <laughs> I don't think they're focusing on the four and eight part of this year. I think they're focusing on the Clemson part of this year, and uh, I'm sure uh, coaches of the opposing team are focusing on the four and eight part of this year. But – to Dino, it's still about looking ahead, and he talked about this earlier. It's kind of about selling the vision, uh, showing them the numbers, Ahmed Atawo and Steve Ishmael and Eric Dungy and, and you know, all these kind of statistics and records that are going to be broken, and you can be a part of this. And, you know, I, I, I don't think they're too far past the start for them to, to still be able to sell looking forward. You know, when you get four years in and you, you haven't gone to a bowl game, you know, then it's turning this thing you know you need to adjust the narrative but I think they're still pushing that we're looking ahead you know even the roster this year was only about 50% Babers recruits 50% Schaefer recruits pitched the slow rebuild and uh you know basically preaching that the the best football for this program is clearly in front of them and and I think in in relation to you know the guys that they're recruiting at the junior college level, you know, they are pushing guys on being able to come in here and make an immediate impact. Mm-hmm. And I think, you know, one of the things, I was a little surprised you mentioned Joel Shaw, but, you know, think back to last year. You know, they pursued Gus, uh, Gus Edwards pretty heavily from Miami, yeah. and he ended up going to Rutgers because of a, a situation at Miami. Their administration blocked the, the move because those two sides were going to play this year. But, you know, I think... Reading between the lines, they are looking for a dude or a guy at that running back position. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, Strickland's a, a good serviceable back. Serviceable back. Mo Neal is a is a you know still undersized but shifty back who can make plays in space. No doubt about it. You know, he's a good player for them, but probably not a twenty carry a game kind no. of guy. And when yeah. you look at the shortcomings of this offense, so much of it this past year and really you know the opening year too is they didn't have a running game. And when you don't have a running game and are so predictable and one-dimensional on offense... Eric Dungey was your running Pony game. defenses yeah. don't even need to respect the running game, you know, and that allows them to focus on stopping your two primary weapons in Ishmael and Phillips. Yeah. And it's, it's going to be tough to move the ball uh, consistently. So I think, you know, the areas that they are pinpointing in recruiting um, are areas that they know they need to address in the here and now to you know, <laughs> win, win games in the short term and get better. Yeah. That's, that's the future that's re- replacing and bringing in players new to the roster. Let's discuss the players on this roster that have to fill holes in 2018. What are the biggest holes on this team, and do they have the players on the roster that can at least, you know, attempt to fill those holes from day one starting next season? Well, I mean, I'll start on the offense side of the ball, and I'll, I'll let Steven do the defense. But, you know, for me, it's the receiver position. I mean, you lose uh, – you know, one of the most productive guys, two of the most productive guys that have ever come through this program in Steve Ishmael and Irv Phillips. Ishmael caught 100 balls this year. Irv was somewhere, I think, around 90. Mm-hmm. So you're losing a significant level of production. 
and sort of those ancillary guys that had an opportunity to take that next step developmentally this year, whether it's Sean Riley, uh, whether it's Jamal Custis, whether it's Devin Butler, I don't think either one of those guys really put forth a consistent effort week to week that gives you a lot of confidence. So all of a sudden now the attention turns to those 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 you know quartet of freshmen who who redshirted or got onto the field sparingly this year. Nikeem Johnson, Sherrod Johnson, Cam Jordan, Russell Thompson Bishop, Bishop. I think there's going to be every opportunity for them this offseason to continually physically develop and then when they get on the field in spring practice to make an initial impression on the coaching staff that says, "Hey, you can trust me out there and uh, help." You know, replace two of the guys that were really the crux of your offense this past season. Yeah, and I think just as clearly on defense, it's linebacker. I mean, you lose <laughs> Zaire, uh, Zaire Franklin, Paris Bennett, the two pretty clear leaders of the defense, uh, guys who played 92 and 93% of defensive snaps this year, respectively, wow. which is absurd. Uh, and hint that might have something to do with why they looked a step slower at the end of the year. Uh, Jonathan Thomas and Austin Valdez kind of split time unevenly. JT played more at the third linebacker spot. But looking at guys coming back next year, I think Andrew Armstrong played the most snaps at 80 this year, and that was mostly in a sub package. So that's really alarming. They don't have anyone who's played a ton of snaps here. Ryan Guthrie could slide back from defensive end. I think that might depend on do they get a Dorian Gerald, do they get a uh, a good pass rusher coming in who, who can provide some depth there because Guthrie worked on a weak side behind Paris in the spring and, and a little bit of the fall. Um, but Andrew Armstrong, I think, is going to be penciled in as a starter. They really like Tyrell Richards, true freshman who redshirted this year. He arrived with the size to play, uh, and, and he's really impressed uh, running the scout team defense through the year. Been in the backfield a lot, super disruptive, uh, smart kid. Uh, Zaire Franklin spoke really highly of him. So those are a couple names to watch. You got Shy Cullen and Darius Fagan probably battling at Sam, but you know, like Nate said, they are 100% looking at JUCOs and 200% looking at grad training. And boys, let us not forget the lonesome kicker. You know, say all you want about Cole Murphy, as polarizing as he was, he made a lot of field goals too, missed some key ones that stick in your mind, but. Is Sterling Hoffrichter going to take on both roles? I mean, they I, and kickoffs Somebody and kickoffs. kickoffs. Yeah. I mean, I guess so, but I don't think that's ideal that you want somebody uh, taking on two or three kicking roles. So that could be another JUCO possibility. Or is there someone on this roster other than Sterling Hoffrichter that can step in? I think that's a big question to watch uh, going into spring ball. It's Jeff Chan, right? That's the it, kid. It, it could be Andre. I don't know how to pronounce his name. Smith. Smith. He yeah. was he was going to Louisville as a preferred walk on mm-hmm. until. Uh, until Syracuse came into the picture. They will have options to take a hard look at this offseason for sure, but you know, I wouldn't rule out anything, whether it's Sterling, if he has to handle all three responsibilities, I, th- I think they'll do it. But to, to quickly go back, and I don't, I don't want to go too far ahead here, but you know, anyone who, who thought that this was not a four-year minimum rebuild job I think needs to wake up. And I think you know, the stuff we talked about in the, in the last segment there about the need for development at receiver and, and linebacker you know, points to that. I mean, next year they're going to be young uh, and have to play a lot of guys that don't have a lot of playing experience who still need to physically mature. I mean, there's guys that they have redshirted at those positions, specifically receiver and at linebacker and in the secondary, um, who are going to be playing a more prominent role in this program in, in the short term. And, you know, they are going to be young players that, again, need the time and the, and the development to really 
start clicking on all cylinders. And well, so, if I know one thing about uh, college football fans, Nate, they're very patient people. <laughs> so I'm sure they're going to go along with this plan. Yeah. I mean, I, I guess the downside of that is, to steal a phrase from Dino Babers, you showed us what you're capable of. Now, again, it's a, it's a roster turnover. A lot of those players mm-hmm. are, are moved on, and you have to be fair about what you're handed to do that with. But I think this is going to turn into, and, and maybe we need to be careful not to do this, but... I'm going to be curious to kind of keep my ear to the ground and see if fans say bowl or bust. Got to get to a bowl game next year. And how light does the schedule get next year to accomplish that? I mean, it's a little lighter on the surface, but not as much as you think. I mean, you got Western Michigan, our old friend Tim Lester coaching there. UConn, Notre Dame, Wagner is your non-conference slate, and then the usual ACC run. And what expectations can you have there when you finished in last place in the Atlantic? And according to a power rankings I read on Syracuse.com, the second worst team in the ACC. I think it's I think it's fair to expect a bowl game next year. But what I'm talking about for year four, I'm talking the nine games that they should have won this year. They win those games, or they're you know within some sort of catastrophe of of not coming through. You know something something you can't predict will you know whether it's an injury at the starting quarterback position or your your, your roster is decimated to the point that North Carolina's was this year. Everything is geared towards, I think, 2019. And I hate to say that and just kind of sort of just set aside 2018, but you look at the defensive line with some of the guys that they're going to have returning in, in Kendall Coleman, Josh Black, Alton Robinson. They're going to be seniors at that in that year. Yeah, you know, the linebackers and the receivers are going to have a year of experience and another year of you know physical maturation under their belt. They're going to be rock and roll and ready to go. The secondary, Evan Foster... You know, Afitu Melifanu, those guys are going to be a year older um, and ready to rock and roll and, and punish people. And the quarterback is obviously the biggest turnover there. But at that point, you know, regardless of what happens next year, it'll be Tommy's third year in the program. In that That's sy- year. In that system, regardless if it's, it's his first time seeing, you know, a significant number of snaps, he should be well in tune with that offense where he should be able to, you know, orchestrate that thing. We'll see if it all adds up to a season we'll remember for a long, long time, gentlemen. In the meantime, we will remember your coverage in 2017 for a long, long time. Thank you for all the great work on the beat this year. Thanks for joining us here on the Syracuse Sports Podcast, and we'll catch up again soon. My pleasure, Brent. Thanks, Brent. Thanks for listening to the Syracuse Sports Podcast. Make sure to subscribe in iTunes and look for us on Apple Podcasts to get the latest delivered right to your phone, iPad, or wherever you listen to your podcast. I'm Brent Adams. We'll talk to you next time.